everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And Allison, nurse manager extraordinaire, is back with us. Hey, Allison. Hey, Tina. So good to have you back on this day that both of us worked all day. I worked until seven and then <laughs> rushing home to try to get this all pulled together. It's been kind of crazy. Yeah, this was the first day this week that I left before 8.30. So. Oh my goodness. Ooh, those were late. That, that's late even for me. Well, we're going to get into these stories and I think we've got a couple of really good stories. One of them, I have received tons and tons of emails and requests to do this story for the bad nurse. So for those of you who are listening, if you sent me this story, I'm finally doing this story. So uh, when we get there, I'll tell you tell you what it is. First of all, we'll get into our little news section though. I found this, this just hit the news um, from Salt Lake, the Salt Lake uh, Tribune, just like within the last 24 hours. But this article talking about how a Utah judge ruled that a jail nurse can be held liable for giving ibuprofen to an inmate with a fatally ruptured spleen. And basically what happened is this inmate, Heather Miller, who it really shouldn't matter what she did really, because no matter what you do, if you're an inmate and you're there, you're vulnerable, they have a an obligation and a responsibility to care for each and every person that's there, regardless of what they did. But just knowing that she was really just there for possession of very minimal drug paraphernalia and had a little you know, trace of methamphetamines or something like that in her system, for some reason just makes it even more disturbing. You know, just it doesn't make any sense really what happened to her. For whatever reason, she fell from the top bunk of her jail cell and she landed on the floor, which was concrete. And when she did, she told the nurse that she was hurting all over. And I mean, we know, you and I know that people say they hurt and it's really tempting as a nurse to be skeptical of that. We're not supposed to, we're supposed to, you know, treat everyone if they say pain is what they say it is, but sometimes it's hard. And as I would imagine in the setting that this nurse was working in, it might have even been been more difficult because he probably sees this so often. But she did say she was hurting all over her body. The person that was in the cell with her said that they saw her hit her head. And when she tried to get up, the, there was another woman that was in there that said that she had hit her side pretty hard. So the nurse, Maven Anderson, helped walk her to another cell because she could not stand up on her own and then gave her some ibuprofen. She was nauseous and dizzy, and she had a hard time answering his questions. And then at one point, another jail staffer found her curled up in the floor moaning. And then another staff member said that she was bleeding from her chin and her arm. But Nurse Anderson did not check on her again until the point that she had died from her injuries. And he didn't even check her vitals at all, which is, I don't, I've never worked. Have you ever worked in a jail or known anyone? No, I've never worked in a jail or known anybody that has worked in a jail. It's kind of hard for me to imagine. I've only worked in a hospital, so I don't, it's hard for me to imagine that that setting, you know, what, what's protocol, what's expected and, and that sort of, I'm sure there are protocols and expected responses to things. Yeah, I would imagine that they, even though it's not a hospital setting, it's still 
it would be like an outpatient setting in my opinion. So even if something would happen, they would have to do vital signs or, you know, document a record of the event, you know, what actions they took. So, and it says, well, we can get to that later, that they are kind of looking at the, their policies and procedures now that this event has happened. But it does look like from what this article says, that there was a clear violation of their protocol by Nurse Anderson because it says that he didn't check her blood pressure after she fell and that should have been one of the first things that he did. Yeah, it seems like it would be very standard that if, if someone falls, that you would check a set of vitals at mm-hmm. least one, but really you should be checking them regularly for at least the first, you know, few hours to just make sure nothing happened. You know, do right. do a neuro check, maybe every couple hours, check them. I mean, at the hospital, it's a whole lot more strict than that. If somebody falls, it's a big deal. But I, I don't know how it is at a jail, but it, it sounds like he didn't even administer just really basic kind of like common sense nursing care for her. Right. Especially when she was, she was bleeding. So her wounds weren't addressed. She was reported laying curled up, moaning. I understand that inmates are a different type of population. And so they might do these things on purpose to get themselves, you know, sent to the hospital or whatever, but she couldn't answer the orientation questions. You know, she was in a lot of pain It was reported by her cellmate that she landed very hard, that she hit her head. So even if he had done the basic things like a neuro check and the blood pressure, then he would have saw that she needed further medical attention, especially if she was confused and having any sort of mental status change. I would think that would have been enough to alert his supervisor and transport to the hospital just to get a a checkout. Yeah, just to have her checked out, that would have that would have shown, I'm sure, what it what it needed to in order to be able to get the care that she needed. Because what happened is when she did fall, she ruptured her spleen and she basically just bled, you know, she bled to death. And internally she had she was bleeding internally. He should have seen that on her vitals right away. It should have been obvious. But the U.S. District Court did decide that he is responsible. They decided that he showed deliberate indifference in offering her medical care. And she died as a result of their of them not giving her the care that she needed, just basic care. And she died in December 2016. More than a liter of blood pulled into her abdomen after her, her spleen ruptured from that fall. And her mom has been the one fighting for two years to try to get justice for her. And she says that if jail staff, in particular the nurse, who was, should have been responsible to get her care, if they had responded the way they should have, quickly, just checking vitals, maybe sending her for a scan or whatever, they would have detected it, most likely in her daughter, 28-year-old daughter would probably not have died because of this. 
And Anderson right. said that he thought that Miller was, that she was just experiencing drug withdrawals and it didn't need help. We did a story. Um, I can't remember who I did this story with. Um, I think it was Christina. Was it Christina? Similar. It was very similar where the jail oh. nurse just completely just thought, oh, it's just drugs. It's just mm-hmm. withdrawing was, from drugs. And they were in, um, they were diabetic. Yes. Is that the story? Yes. And he died. Oh, it was so disturbing. It's so hard for me because I, oh, I, when I think of someone in jail, I just feel like there's, it's such a vulnerable population. And I know that I, I, for, number one, people are innocent until proven guilty. So you just because someone has been arrested and they're in jail doesn't mean they're guilty. They haven't even had an opportunity to you know defend themselves or whatever. So you can't even assume that they're in jail. They're being held prisoner. They may need to be in there, but still they're very vulnerable. So the the state and the people who have decided to sign up for that job, who've taken on that responsibility or getting paid to be there, have a huge responsibility on their shoulders to care for these people. They cannot get help for themselves. There's nothing they can do. They're totally at your mercy. That so just, it bothers me so much. Right, because they can't call 911. Nope. They don't have access to any of those things. And it said, um, you know, that she was unconscious and unmoving for three hours on the floor of her cell yeah. before they decided to take her to the medical unit. You know, at at that point, it should register to somebody that she's not faking it. And even if he did think that she was going through withdrawals, you know, withdrawals can be very serious um, and very deadly to a patient if they're not handled the right way and they don't get things to help them through that withdrawal period. So if that's what he was thinking that, you know, she's just going through withdrawals, he still should have got her medical attention. Well, that should be, and that also, I remember Christine and I talking about this as well, because I literally know, I don't know the person directly, but I, you know, I'm sort of connected to uh, someone who died in a jail cell because they were an alcoholic, they were, they were arrested and they were in jail and they detoxed in jail without any help. And that person died in jail because of it. So it's a very serious, a nurse should know this. A nurse working in a jail should know this. You're dealing with this with this patient population, the, pe- the types of people who would be coming in there, you arrest them, they're drinking alcohol on a regular basis. How in the world, this is not basic knowledge, like second, third day, you better be thinking about, he should have been assessing her anyway because of... Right. So. Regardless of her falling, if he thought she was going through withdrawals, he should have been doing assessments. Yeah. It's very disturbing to me. And I, um, I'm i glad that the judge ruled the way that he did. Now, the the case that we did before, that nurse is was being held criminally. I remember kind of being shocked about that and having mixed feelings, honestly, because still I feel like sometimes you can be a bad nurse, but not necessarily a criminal. You're just not, you need to lose your license. You don't need to be taking care of people. You don't deserve Mm -hmm. to take care of, you don't deserve that privilege anymore of taking care of people. I just don't, I don't know about criminal charge. You know what I mean? I, that, yeah, that bothers me. If, if it was obvious that they knew what they were doing was going to harm the person, 
then that would be different, of course. But I do, but in this case, I, I don't think that he was, I think it said something like, because the judge determined that he can be held liable, then lawsuits and that sort of thing can can happen. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that disturbed me the most about this case was that they didn't notify her family for about a week oh. after she passed away. Unbelievable. So, you know, I don't I don't know if her family had tried to call her. I've personally never been in jail, so I'm not sure of the rules. I don't know if you get to make phone calls regularly or things like that, but I'm would imagine that it I mean it sounds like she was still involved with her family. And so I would if that was me as the mother, I would be wondering, you know, okay, why hasn't she called me? You know, can I call and check in? So I, I imagine the mom called the jail, maybe try to talk to her and check in with her. And who knows what they told her, but they waited over a week to notify her. Yeah, shocking to me. And that's disturbing. That they would not have the decency to want to let the family know that this happened. Mm-hmm. It's it's just, it's horrifying on so many levels. And I, I, I just can't believe it happened. I'm glad that the judge... Um, decided the way he did. I feel like that's completely appropriate. I really do. Mm-hmm. I agree. Hey, Q, we're in a commercial, so we got to talk fast. Let's do it. Okay. So I think I know the answer to this question, but have you ever signed up for a travel nurse agency and immediately regretted it when you started getting all those texts and emails? Sadly, Tina, yes, I have. Okay. Well, Trusted Health is a nurse travel agency that's going to change all of that. They make it simple and fast to go online and sign up, and then you immediately start seeing job opportunities that are tailored to your interests, and you can even see the pay. Sounds too good to be true, Tina. Well, the best part is there are no recruiters, no unwanted emails, and no unwanted text messages. No recruiters? Tina, I'm going to need some help. Where are we going to go if we have all these questions? Right, right. Well, they do have nurse advocates who are there to answer any questions. They'll help guide you through the process, but they're not commission-based, so they're not going to try to pressure you into taking a job that you don't want. Cool beans, cool beans. Well, tell them where to sign up because we're running out of time here. Okay, right, right. So, you guys, if you're even a little curious about travel nursing and you want to help support our little podcast here at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, please go to www.trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and follow the steps to completing the sign-up process. It's real important that you complete the whole process for us to get credit, and we would really appreciate the support. Remember to be sure and put forward slash good nurse at the end of the URL when you go to their website so they'll know we sent you there. Trusted Health, they're not just an agency, they're a movement. So that brings us around to our bad nurse story. So you guys have been sending me this story for months now. I keep getting emails, messages, Hey, have you done this story? I haven't heard you do the story. It's Elizabeth Wetlaufer. I think that's how you say her name. She is a Canadian nurse who, well, we'll get into that. But you guys, a lot of you are probably going to be familiar with this just because if you like listening to this show, you're probably kind of up on some of the, because this is a recent thing that happened and it really did shock it shocked everyone in America, but definitely in Canada for sure, because that's where she was from. So you hadn't heard about this, Allison? No, I had not heard about this. It's pretty rough. It's pretty, it's pretty rough. It's pretty unbelievable. I, we get these, you know, we've done a few of these stories of, of nurses who basically turn on their patients. And it's, it, it always bothers me so much. Like I, 
I actually prefer to do the stories that are like nurses who get mad at their husband or nurses who, (laughs) you know, in a fit of rage or, you know, doctors who, I I don't know. It's like, to me, those are easier to understand, you know, Mm -hmm. losing your temper. Yeah. Yeah. Losing your temper. There's a sudden moment of rage that you couldn't control. But this is like, oh, it's disturbing on so many levels. It makes me feel scared to death to go to a hospital. It makes me scared to who am I working next to? Like It's just, it goes against everything that I know because of all of the people that I work with and how wonderful everyone is. So Elizabeth Wetlaufer, um, she grew up in Canada on the outskirts of Woodstock, Ontario. And I guess everyone, well, her maiden name was Elizabeth Parker before she got married. She was born in June 10th, 1967. So she's just uh, what, about 52, 50, about 52 years old. She grew up in a household, first of all, Baptist household, Christian home. She, one of her neighbors described their household as like a leave it to beaver type home. So that kind of image, if you th- can think about, you know, like the perfect mom, dad, you know, kids, everything's just the way it's supposed quote, supposed to be. She got her bachelor degree in religious education counseling from London Baptist Bible College in the mid-80s. And then she went to nursing school at Conesta College and graduated from there, I believe, 1995. Her mom was kind of like, it was kind of one of those households where it's like, dad actually does wear the pants, you know? So, you know, dad, dad mom pretty much let dad run things. She didn't really step in and stand up for, I guess, for Beth. And so she was real shy. She was awkward, kind of bullied, unfortunately. And this is sort of a trend that you see. It's something that you see in a lot of people who end, who do end up hurting people later on. I've always, have you ever heard the saying, hurting people hurt people? No, I haven't, but it makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. I do think that when someone is hurting not everyone reacts this way, but some people who are hurting, they lash out at other people as like a release mm-hmm. to maybe make themselves feel better. And I'm not saying that she, everyone who is hurt or everyone that has a difficult childhood obviously is going to go off and, and be a, a serial killer, hopefully. <laughs> but it definitely, that trend definitely follows with a lot of these stories. Mm-hmm. When she was seven years old, she actually tried to change her name because all the kids would call her Bethy and she didn't like that. She wanted to be Beth, but she wanted to put an E at the end of it, which is really odd to me because she thought somehow that was going to change how they pronounced her name. But to me, putting an E at the end almost makes them want to say Bethy. But yeah, that was her thinking. She would write poetry. She wrote some kind of disturbing poems in high school. You can really see just her, I don't know, she was kind of deep. You know, she saw Mm -hmm. things that you're just like, wow, that's... And it probably is more ominous because I, once you know the things that she did and then you go back and read a poem like that, you're going to see everything through those glasses, you know? Right, hindsight's 20-20. Right, and so then everything looks like, oh gosh, that's so disturbing. She, at some point in her teenage years, started struggling with her sexual identity. She was seen with a girlfriend at a gay-friendly church and her 
I guess it's sort of, you know how these things are, rumors, but the the rumor is, or what what people say is that her father went in, found her and made her go home. Mm-hmm. But she was apparently made uh, to be, made to leave. Uh, but that's something that she struggled with over the years is she struggled with her sexual identity, but being a Baptist Christian uh, and being raised in that household and being taught that it was wrong, she would go back and forth between accepting that she was like that and experimenting with that and and having girlfriends to thinking it's wrong and not wanting to do it at all and then going completely the other way. So that was part of her struggle. So she did uh, get her registered nurse license in 1995. And she was hired at Geraldton District Hospital in Northern Ontario. So right away, and this is also something that happens in these stories. It's so rare for nurses who do this sort of thing to just be caught all of a sudden and have no signs whatsoever up to that point. It's very unusual. Usually there are things that happened at previous employers but those employers didn't want to say anything. They didn't want to rock the boat. So they kind of helped sweep it under the rug. And that's sort of what happened here. So at this first job that she had, she basically stole something like a Xanax type of medication, trying what she says is trying to commit suicide. And when they found her like passed out and questioned her about it, she admitted that she stole it from a patient. And she was fired because of that. And the Nurses Association filed a grievance on her behalf. Within the hospital, changed her record. And, and instead of showing why she was fired, they actually showed on her record that she resigned for health reasons. What, I, what do you think about that? Um, I, I have a very hard problem with that. And that's the manager in me that wants to say no. You can't do that. And so I think that's where everything kind of started for her. I think that was her first taste of, oh, I can do something and get away with it. Because, you know, the board was kind of on her side. I guess they felt like it was a wrongful termination. The way I read that was they kind of bullied the hospital into changing that record to allow her maybe to go on with her employment um, instead of, trying to get her, you know, I think if that happened now in 2017, you know, we would try to get somebody help. But, you know, stealing narcotics, stealing any kind of medicine from a patient is a immediately fireable offense. I would hope so. I really would. I, mm-hmm. I it's, it's, it's hard I, I, because part of me want, I guess the nurse in me wants to have compassion for them. And I want to think, well, I don't want them to lose their license. I want them to get help. I want them to be able to maybe work again one day. But the part of me that is that potential patient in a hospital or a potential family member being a patient in the hospital, that person says, I do not want anyone able to work as a nurse at a hospital taking care of my loved one or me when they obviously struggle with this. So I've I have the two, I'm conflicted on that. I, yeah, I could see that. And I think if I had a problem and I was taking meds from a patient and I voluntarily went and said, 
to my supervisor, hey, I have a problem. I've, I've been taking meds. I don't know what's going on. I need help. That's one scenario. But if I just keep doing what I'm doing and taking meds from a patient, and then I get caught doing that, I feel like those are two completely separate scenarios. And I think that their resolution is different. Yeah. And so I think the person that acknowledges that they have a problem and is willing to seek help and seek treatment, I think that, you know, they can, they can change. And I can say that because somebody who I'm very close with has went through that. They had a very rough nursing career for a little bit and they knew they had a problem. They sought help and they have been clean and sober for I don't even know how many years, but a very, very long time. They have a very successful career. And if they didn't tell you that they had had that problem, you never would know it. Um, And this person speaks pretty openly about it. You know, they understand that they're not the only one to go through this. They're not the first, they're not the last. And they know that some people can be rehabbed. Yeah. And go back into the profession. That's very satisfying to me because that's that's what I would want is for someone to, you know, have a second chance to to not because it is an you know addiction is a disease, and I can imagine if someone in certain situations just got, it got a hold of them and they weren't able to control it, uh, but then they wanted help, like you said, they sought help, they looked to the hospital or to their manager or to someone and said, I, I have to have help with this. That person is so different than the person who's sneaking around doing all these different things to try to steal medicine from patients and then they get caught. Of course, they're sorry they got caught, but how do you ever know that they're truly, you know. Sorry for their actions. Yeah, and really are wanting to make a change. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's a that's a hard that's a hard situation. I'm glad that there are people and I know that there are systems in place to help people like that and I'm glad that there are cuz it it would be really addiction is way too unfortunately too commonplace if we just threw everybody under the bus who could, you know, who could become addicted there would be a lot of people who would not be able to get a job who would it would never but if you treat people like okay this isn't this is a, a disease let's get you better get you back and then now they're just like everybody else they you know they've beat it so i think that's good so this is i guess it's kind of hard cuz you can't if this is the only thing that happened then you wouldn't say well they should have known. She should have never been able to work anywhere else ever again, you know, but it's not the only thing that happened. There were several things that happened. She was fired from one place because she supposedly accidentally gave insulin to the wrong patient. She also would get in trouble for weird things like eating food off of patients' trays and just patients and family members actually started filing complaints against her and she had a she had numerous reprimands for medication errors but then she still would keep her job so it's just kind of it's hard for me to understand because this is not like an isolated incident that happened with her that okay we're going to give you another chance and then she came around and was like i'm going to beat this and she beat it and then she went forward and like let's let's move on as if this didn't happen so that you can continue to work this is like thing after thing after thing she kept doing and 
things kept happening and it, something, it all kept getting swept under the rug. And I feel like it's, well, for one thing, like you said, the nurses union kind of represented her kind of on her behalf or the, or the nurses association. There was a nurses union in 2014 where because she was fired who supported her and they negotiated on her behalf. And then after they negotiated, her record showed that she resigned and was given a $2,000 settlement and a letter of recommendation. <laughs> it's just, that, that just blows my mind. If you as a manager had a nurse come to you, she's been, mm-hmm. okay, it's 2014. She got, she got her license in 1995. She's been a nurse for 20 years, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've got, it's hard to get experienced nurses. We know this. Yes. Not easy. So you've got a nurse who comes, comes to you, graduated in 1995. She's worked at all these different places and she has a letter of recommendation from where she worked before. It shows she was given, she resigned from where she worked. She was given a $2,000 settlement. What would you think about that? Well, I mean, I, I would probably not question it, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, you know, if she came with this glowing recommendation. Well, yeah. Why would you, why would you question that? Whenever I went to interview at the hospital that I work now, you gave an amazing recommendation. I never saw it, but it must've been really amazing because I went for the interview with HR and then they said, so a nurse manager wants to talk to you. And I was really shocked because it happened very quickly. I, they called and were like, can you come tomorrow? And I was like, yes. I didn't expect to be going to an interview with the nurse manager that day. I figured it would take time. So I was really surprised that they, they said, she's going to come and get you. And I was like, oh, this happened very fast. She walked me up to the floor where I was going to be working, took me back to her office interviewed me. And at the end of the interview, she said, I would like to offer you a job. And I was like, I could not believe it. I was blown away. I was just sitting there like, what? That never happens. You always (laughs) have to, you always have to sweat it out. Like when I first interviewed with you, I remember like, I wanted to be like, am I going to get the job or not? Please just tell me. (laughs) (laughs) And then you called, it was a few days later, which is very standard. That's usual. You know, you wanted to interview lots of different people. She just offered me the job. And she said, the recommendation that, that I got from Allison about you, because of that recommendation, I have no hesitation whatsoever to just offer you the job. She said, I was going to wait till after the interview. And then if everything went well, I was just, I was like, yes, accept. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. But the thing is, that's what a rec- letter of recommendation does for someone. It's like, it tells the manager, it tells the person hiring, like, you don't have to just blindly hope just based on the interview or their, you know, their grades from school or whatever. You, you literally have a place where she worked saying, this is a good candidate. How can you get any better than that? Right. So you could be totally baffled. And and that's a practice that I really don't agree with. And I think it's something that the hospital we work at, we have talked about um, in our manager group is don't pass the trash. So if you have an employee that is substandard and they're not performing well in your unit, sometimes they, you know, they know that, they know that their time is limited. And so they will... Um, try to do a transfer to another another floor. And so I would say most of us are very um, open and transparent with each other. I will never 
send a, now I'm not going to badmouth an employee. I've been accused of that and that's very hurtful, but I will tell the facts and the listeners don't know this, but I am very detail oriented and I'm very data driven. So usually, um, you know, when I'm, if I want to say, you know, I wouldn't recommend this person because of their attendance, I'm going to give you the exact number of call-ins, the number of tardies, I'm going to have data to back up. And that's just something I've learned over the years um, being a manager is that it definitely helps you present your case if you're having a difficult employee, if you have data and stuff to prove your point. And so, you know, we, we try really hard at our hospital not to do that to each other. Now, have I been, have I accepted some transfers when I think the managers were either not aware of this, uh, the employee's behavior, you know, maybe they hadn't, it maybe it hadn't presented itself yet, or they just didn't want to deal with the employee anymore. That's happened to me a few times. There's also been times when I've been very transparent and said, you know, here's, here's the issues I'm having. But I always say, you know, you can read their file, go through it before you accept them. And they've been accepted anyway, even though I would never have recommended that transfer. And, you know, never would have given a, a recommendation letter. And sometimes it happens and they succeed in the new place. You know, the change of environment or the change in management style. But I have a hard time with the fact that she was given multiple, you know, letters of recommendation, glowing references when they weren't earned. No, there's no way. They said she was well-liked. She's a good worker. She loved to mentor and teach. Maybe that was partially true that I guess maybe she could love to mentor and teach like she, you know, like a show off, like, can you know, show somebody what she knows or whatever. But based on the things that she was fired for and that she obviously was reprimanded for, I, there's no way she was a good worker. Right. <laughs> right. Maybe people liked her, but I don't. I don't think that she was a good worker. No one could say that based on those things that she did. (laughs) And they certainly did not. I think that even if her supervisors kind of knew some of these things that she did, I don't think that they had any indication whatsoever that she was, you know, doing the really horrible things that she was actually doing, the really dark, dark things. But they definitely, at the same time, didn't bother to let them know that she was fired for giving insulin to the wrong patient. That's so, it's almost unforgivable. Like how, really, how do you do that? And knowing what she did later on makes me go, really, was it an accident? Yeah, well, you would actually be surprised how many times patients get the wrong insulin. There are, my very first day as manager, I think I may have mentioned this before. I had a nurse who gave, was drawing up Lantus and Protonics and they put the flush for, you know, you got to reconstitute the protonics and they put the flush to reconstitute the protonics in the Lantus because they were talking to the patient, they were distracted. And this was a 20 plus year nurse. This was not a new grad. Um, and, you know, put the, the flush in there, reconstituted the Lantus, drew it up and gave it to the patient. Oh, so... Luckily, she quickly realized what she did and the patient, you know, they moved them to the ICU. They monitored them. The patient was in the ICU for a, a few days and that, and you know, very experienced nurse, 
not paying attention to what they were doing. And then, you know, I know of another incident where a new grad gave 10 milliliters of, I believe it was regular insulin. You know, you normally draw them up in the the small syringe and its units. And I think that whole syringe is like, what, like half a mil? I think they come in like half a mil and one mil. Yeah. The, the entire syringe. And so this was a new grad and they drew up, they emptied, I think it was like 10 bottles of insulin. I mean, but it was a, it was 10 milliliters is what it came out to be of insulin and gave it. How? They, uh, <laughs> I I'm, re- I'm really not sure. <laughs> that, ner- that nurse did not work for me. That was just a case that I had oh. read, like it was a peer review thing. Well, one thing that I love about where I work and where where we work is that whenever something happens, if there's an event like that, whether it's at our hospital or whether it's just something that's well known that's happened at a hospital, for instance, the incident that happened at Vanderbilt, our hospital really went into action after that and they went and pulled Vecaronium out of the Omni cells and they I feel like they try to protect our patients and our nurses from mm-hmm. things like this happening. So why on earth other institutions would not want to do that? I, I, I mean, we're, we're human beings. We're going to make mistakes. We're not going to get around that. That's going to happen. But there's some things that you just, the hospital has got to put some safeguards in place to keep stuff like this from, from happening. But if you have a nurse who wants to do it, then, well, what are you going to do? You have to be able to trust people at some point to have integrity and do the right thing and take care of their patient and not want to hurt someone. I don't know mm-hmm. how you you can't trust someone to do the things that we have to do for people. You can't allow I don't, I don't I guess what I'm saying is you can't give people this responsibility and then somehow keep them from being able to cross this line. I don't know how you would do that. So, yeah, cuz I mean they, you know, that's personal accountability. Yeah. You know, you're giving them all this power, you're giving them authority, and then you're just trusting that they use it wisely. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, um, when she started, so apparently when she was working at this other facility, she had actually already killed seven people and no one knew, no one had any idea. She picked victims who were older, who were very sick. And so she did it in such a way that no one would think that it was done deliberately. It just seemed natural. I do remember seeing one of these articles that there was a time one of these victims, the family was concerned. They felt like something was off. Even though the patient was older, even though the patient was sick, they felt like something was off here. And the I guess whoever made that decision refused to look into it is what the article said. And this is Canada. You know, there are definitely different laws here. I don't think that would fly. <laughs> but no. at some point, so she did start just, I think she just got to the point that she was comfortable doing this. She said mm-hmm. that she almost got this laughing feeling is how she described it. It was like a high to her to be able to have this sort of power and control over people. And she also said that at some point she she went through a divorce and she was angry with her 
husband. And she would go into these, she would call them red rages. And she said she basically couldn't control herself. She had, she would just, she had no control over it whatsoever. So while she was a nurse at this place called Caressant Care, which is a a long-term home in Woodstock, she just started giving them insulin. Sometimes it wasn't really enough to kill them. She would just give them extra, I guess, just to see what would happen. Maybe make them lethargic or take them to a, a state that then she could bring them back and that sort of thing. Just really sort of experimenting. And that's something else that we've we've heard about with some of these mm-hmm. people that do this sort of thing. They just want to, they start out kind of experimenting to see what will this drug do? And mm-hmm. that's their way of testing it. They think that the first time she actually started doing this was somewhere in the neighborhood of like between June 25th and December 31st of 2007. Where when she injected two sisters, and I'm I'm gonna try to say this name. I I don't want to be disrespectful. But I don't know how to say. I'm not sure now how to say that, but it looks like Clotilda Adriano, and she was 87 years old, an albina Demidiro Demidiros. She was 88. So these two sisters, 87 and 88, living in this facility together. She injected them with insulin. They died, and no one ever suspected her. There was a man by the name of James Silcox. He was 84. He was a World War II veteran, father of six children. Um, she also, there was Maurice Mo Granite, who was 84. Gladys Millard, who was 87. Helen Matheson, 95. Mary Zurowinski, who's 96. Helen Young, who's 90. And Maureen Pickering, who was 79. She also injected Michael Priddle, who was 63, Wayne Hedges, who's 57. And so basically she, it was attempted murder because she injected them, but they actually didn't die. And then Mm -hmm. some of them, you know, she intended for them to die and they did. She left employment there, but did some part-time work at other facilities and at patients' homes. And she injected three more people with insulin. She killed Arpad uh, Horvath, who was 75 at a Meadow Park facility in London, Ontario. Sandra Towler, who was 77. This is getting younger here. Yeah. At a retirement home. And then Beverly Bertram, who was 68, at a private residence. So this is a nurse going into someone's home. I can't imagine you trust someone to come into your home to take care of you, give you your medicine, provide care. And then this is what, you know, this is what happens. It's very scary. At some point, so she's doing all of this over a period of years, and then she decides that all of a sudden she has a, a wave of, I guess, conscience come over her. Like she decides this is wrong. After all these deaths, after all these years, she decides that it's wrong and that she thinks God or the devil want, wanted her to do it. And then after that, she felt a surge. And then she said she would hear her own laughter afterwards. And she said it was like a crackling from the pit of hell. So she, she started telling. Now, before she actually went and, and was able to convince people, she actually told this. She confessed to several different people. I know she was in like a um, sort of like a group counseling type thing. And she told, that she, she told them that she killed people and they didn't believe her. They said that 
they thought she was a pathological liar. Yeah. And she also told a pastor. Um, she told a friend. She told, um, it said a partner. So she she tried asking for help. Well, I don't know if she was asking for help, but she tried confessing and nobody took her seriously. Is, it, is that not the hardest thing in the world to believe? I, I, gosh, it's so awful because she did kill people after after she started trying. So I think her conscience would start bothering her and then she would sort of start telling people and then they wouldn't believe her. And then she probably would think, good grief, I'm trying to tell people. I literally just told someone and they didn't even believe me. Mm -hmm. Then whatever was going on in her mind then at the time that caused her to feel guilty and want to stop doing it, I guess would subside. Then she would continue and then she just went through this uh, um, for a while until finally she was at this place called the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which was an inpatient drug rehabilitation program. And it was in a psychiatric hospital in Toronto. This was on September 16th in 2016. And she confessed there to staff that she had killed and attempted to kill several patients and at that time, they actually took her seriously. They mm-hmm. notified the colleges, the College of Nurses of Ontario. They notified the Toronto Police Service. They told them about her confession. And then she personally emailed the College of Nurses to resign as a registered nurse because she had, quote, deliberately harmed patients in her care and was now being investigated by the police for same, end quote. So she wrote a four-page handwritten confession Uh, at the CAMA, the Center for uh, Mental Health. And it's just like, all of a sudden, she just decided it was too much. And I think she she decided that she was never going to stop if she didn't actually have herself arrested for this. She was never going to stop doing it. Right. And obviously, she had some undiagnosed mental issues. Yeah. If she's, you know, thinking these as um, these surges and these rages. And I kind of feel like when she was, you know, she would kill somebody and it was almost like she got a high from it. That laughing feeling, you know, it was like she got a high. And so to me, as we were going through the story, I was thinking, you know, she was just trying to feed her addiction. You know, you have that big high, you just, you know, I guess killed somebody. I guess, I guess that gives you a feeling of joy or whatever. And then, you know, I'm I'm sure some time would pass and then there would be like a release, a letdown, and then you would kind of normalize. And then you've got to, you know, you've got to feed that addiction. So you've got to try again, whether that's when she was trying to kill somebody or just giving, overdosing them on the medicine. But I kind of think that she did have, I don't know if I would call it, I would call it an addiction, but I think that she was trying to feed her urges this way. And maybe, you know, we don't know. They never say whether she was continuing to abuse drugs or anything. You know, it said at the very beginning when she stole the patient's medicine, but she could have been doing that as well this whole time. We wouldn't know because it doesn't sound like they document it very well. There could have been other issues going on there too that we don't know about. Yes. Uh, She was diagnosed at some point with borderline personality disorder. Uh, So her... They said that she she was kind, polite, and funny. 
according to a lot of people, but they also said she could be manipulative, calculating, and deceitful. So people saw both sides of her. Even if she thought she was hiding it somehow, they did see that side. It's almost like she was two different people. She was, maybe she struggled because she did grow up in a very strict home. And she, so there was a part of her that wanted to be good and live that life. And then there was this other part that she struggled with wanting, being deceitful of lying and just doing horrible things to people. And she just didn't get help soon enough before she ended up hurting a lot of people. And she was, she was charged with eight counts of first degree murder, four counts of attempted murder and two count, two counts of aggravated assault. But they, it never went to trial because in June 2018, eight months after she confessed, she pleaded guilty to all the charges and the judge sentenced her to life in prison. And she really hasn't explained herself. Other, I mean, she said some things like, you know, she was angry and it was just her acting out. But other than that, she's not really spoken publicly about this. Right. And so that's where I think there's a lot of stuff that we, we don't know. Yeah. I honestly don't know that she knows, really, just based on yeah. all of this stuff. Yeah, it just doesn't sound, it sounds like she's, she doesn't even understand herself. I, the fact that she turned herself in, I know that no one wants to really give this woman any credit whatsoever. I, I honestly don't either. But she did turn herself in. That tells me that some part of her, there is some little part of her that is good, that, she, that wants really bad to take over this horrible, evil side. And at some point when that one takes over, she finally, it was strong enough to do the right thing and go and tell and be put in prison. That was the only thing that was ever going to stop her. Mm-hmm. And somebody finally took her seriously. Yeah, thank goodness. All the things that happened, and I know that her accidentally giving insulin or eating food off someone's tray, all the kind of bizarre things that, that she did or her um, behaviors, they don't warrant the obviously this this level of of what you know what she actually ended up doing i don't think that all the those other things really should have given a, a huge hint that she was going to do something so dark it doesn't seem like it i mean i don't think there was anything that would have been like wow she they should have known she was leading up to this yeah cuz it was i mean it was just sloppy practice yes you know i mean i, I do feel like at, with the types of things and how often it was happening I really don't feel like she should have been allowed to keep her license. I really don't think she should have been taking care of people. Right. I think that she should have been stopped earlier on, but the board, I guess it would be their board yeah. of nursing, they seem to defend her every time yeah. instead of, you know, looking at, okay, is obviously we have a continuous problem. Yeah. There's been multiple issues. So maybe we need, do need to conduct an investigation and see if these points are valid or not. But they just kind of swept everything under the rug, didn't really take anything seriously. Yeah. Um, Over and over again. And I'm sure they regret that now, but... Yeah, I'm sure. I guess they... You said that earlier, hindsight is 20-20. Once something like this happens, you can always go back and see things where um, if you just have a nurse who's had had a bad year, had, had a few hiccups made some mistakes, it's, you know, just had some bad luck even, then 
it's kind of, you don't really necessarily want to see somebody like that lose their job, but... Right. Yeah. It's not easy. I, I know I, it's not, it's not easy at all, especially when you have nursing shortages. You do have, we do have a shortage of nurses willing to work at the bedside. So yeah, there's that too, but uh, we're not that desperate, are we? No, no, we are not that desperate. Well, that's the story of Elizabeth Wetlaufer. Uh, she is in prison now and there she'll stay. So we have, now we will talk about our good nurse story. This one is really amazing as a lot of, of our good nurse stories are always, you know, like, oh, so heartwarming. That's what, that's the whole purpose is to kind of take us out of that dark story and get us into something like remind ourselves that nurses are wonderful people that do amazing things. <laughs> <laughs> and this nurse, this story that we found, I love it. It's um, a nurse who gave a part of her liver to save the life of an eight-year-old boy. And I just can, it's kind of hard for me to even imagine. It's, that's not easy. You only have one liver. I mean, that's a big sacrifice. And this Mm -hmm. nurse, she said she heard that this little boy, eight years old, he was in on the wrestling team. He was competing in the state championship. He started feeling sick at school. His parents knew something was wrong because he never gets sick. They took him to the hospital. They diagnosed him with an aggressive virus that was attacking his liver. Is that not the scariest thing ever? Eight years old. It is. Get a virus that attacks your liver. I've never even heard of such a thing. He needed a transplant right away. And the odds of finding a donor were astronomical. And I can't imagine how... It seems like the odds of just a random person walking up and say, I'll give my liver. Wouldn't wouldn't that be pretty rare that that person would even be a match? I would think so, yeah. But she she did, this is what happened. Is she didn't, she just heard about him. It's not like she even took care of him and then was like, oh, I, you know, I, I've got to do something. She just heard about this happening. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'll give part of my liver. Mm-hmm. And she was a match, which is, that's crazy to me. To me, just stepping up and saying, if, hey, if I'm a match, test me, I'll do it. I feel like the chances of you actually being a match should be probably pretty low, right? Yeah. I mean, I I don't deal in transplant, but I would think that the the odds of that are just... It's crazy. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. They have these big donor lists, you know, for um, bone marrow transplant. I know that the odds of you matching a person are just, are astronomical. So I'm assuming it must be that way, I guess, for something like this, but it was a match and she donated part of her liver and the procedure was a success and they got the all clear to resume his normal life. And then, you know, the kind of the, the little, the icing on the cake and it's the ending of the, the nice ending of the story is once he was feeling better, he went back and wanted to just go and meet her, give her a big hug. And so they got a nice little reunion with lots of tears. And of course, they're going to be bonded for life. He, They have the same liver in them. That's so cool. Yeah, that is a pretty special bond to have. Um, I mean, and that really yeah. hits home for me because I have an eight-year-old. Aww. And so, you know, the the fact that he just contracted a random virus that attacked his liver is, it's crazy. Um, yeah. 
I As to, moms, you want to be in control of everything. You want to think, I oh, can yeah. protect them from everything. I can, you know, drive the safest car and always make them wear, you know, seatbelt and do everything mm-hmm. to be safe, safe, safe. And something like this, what are you going to do? It's just the virus out there waiting to, <laughs> waiting to yeah. attack. So scary. It's, it's very scary. Um, and as a mom, I would be, I would be beside myself, but I also have, I don't, I don't know that I've ever told you this, but my son River is eight, you know, and he's my most favorite person in the world. <laughs> but um, when I was pregnant with him, he had a stroke in utero. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Sometime between 28 weeks and birth is what they think. We didn't catch it until he was two. And, you know, by the, by the time we found, I mean, there was no, there was nothing to do at that point. Now, luckily, when, I'll never forget this, when we went to the pediatric neurologist, you know, we we went and their waiting room was crowded and there was all kinds of um, children that were severely, severely disabled. Um, and here's my two-year-old who walks like a pirate, but talks like a, you know, seven or eight-year-old at, at two. We had him in this office that we had been there for like 45 minutes and then an hour and then an hour and a half. And finally we get in the room to see the doctor and he walks in and River said, hi, Dr. G, bye, Dr. G, and <laughs> walked straight out of the office. And this neurologist was like, well, he's had a stroke and, you know, I was floored. I was like, I cannot, there's no way I'm an ICU nurse. How did I ever miss this in my child? And it was a extremely humbling experience for me because being a mom was new to me. And there are so many things that are out of your control. And I went through everything that happened. I was like, was it the time I did CPR at six months pregnant? Or was it, you know, this or that? Or should I not have pulled a patient up in bed? And I could sit here all day long and list off all the things that could have possibly caused this. But, you know, they determined it was a freak accident. And so I understand how you want to put your child in a bubble but you you can't you just can't protect them from everything you can do you know he was in what i thought was the safest place possible yeah you know, in my womb and something happened that yeah. caused a stroke and you know we we are extremely lucky that he just has some physical disabilities from it um his right arm and his right leg are a little bit weaker but cognitively we couldn't ask for any better <laughs> So my heart goes out to that mom because I know what it's like to be completely in control yeah, not in control. Right. Yeah. To just have all that control taken away from you where, you know, you, none of it's, re- control is not a real thing. We, none of us are in control of anything. No, it's an illusion. We yeah. think we have, yeah. we think we got all of our balls up in the air and we're juggling yeah. fine, but we're not. <laughs> <laughs> we're not in control of every, of anything at all. And uh, when something like that happens, you're reminded, you know, just how mm-hmm. anything could happen, anything could go wrong. So just, you know, cherish every moment that you have, of course, with your all your family and loved ones. And I'm just so, I think I love this story because it's so encouraging to think mm-hmm. of a nurse sacrificing a part of herself. That was a huge risk. Mm-hmm. Liver surgery, as you know, the liver is a highly vascular organ. It's very dangerous doing liver surgery. I I just can't even... And she knows this. She's a nurse. She knew what she was doing and she did it anyway. She said, well, he's only eight years old. 
He's got a whole life ahead of him. He deserves to get to live. Mm-hmm. And whether or not she deserved to get to live, she kind of threw up in the air, like maybe, maybe not, because anytime you go under anesthesia, anytime you go under the knife, you go into surgery, you're risking your life. She knows that. Right. And she did it anyway. I'm so proud of her. Her name was, let's see, what was her name? I'm going to find her in here. I wonder her first name. Cammy. Cammy Loritz was her name, an ICU nurse. So way to go there, Cammy. Good job. Well, thank you, Allison, for coming on again for another week. You're welcome. Really appreciate it. And hope you guys enjoyed listening to the show this week. Um, Don't forget to go to www.goodnursebadnurse.com. I always have to pause there because I'm constantly wanting to say the wrong thing. Um, That's www.goodnursebadnurse.com or GNBN Podcast on Facebook or Good Nurse Bad Nurse Podcast on Instagram. Send us a message. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you think of this episode if you listen to it. If you have any additional information that we missed, let us know that too. And if you have ideas, I love it when you guys send me ideas. This is one that came from several different people sending me this story. So... Thanks a lot, you guys. And I want you to just always remember, even if you're a bad girl or a boy, be a good nurse.